nobody cares about your thing as much as you. They're not paying attention. So like you need to quickly get across in a world full of noise why you matter and why they should care. And if you can't do that, what why will I buy from a Facebook ad? Like the funniest video on earth, your ads interrupting it, the funniest video on earth. Why do you deserve my attention in between that stack? You got to get that across. I love that. It all started with a rumor, a whisper about a private WhatsApp chat where nine-figured entrepreneurs swapped insights, information, and deals behind closed doors. And now, for the first time ever, these operators are pulling back the curtain on their clandestine world right here on this podcast. You're about to witness something truly remarkable. A glimpse into the minds and businesses of the world's most successful operators. So sit back, relax, and stay glued to your headphones. The chat is about to begin. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Operators Podcast, Episode 9. We got the most special guest we've ever had. So... I mean, once another dig on Marty. Sorry, man. No, I didn't mean that. No offense, we Marty. Got, we got Maytab, the man with the plan. He'll teach you how to not pay your creditors. That's that's his claim what? to fame. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> he's like, you know, uh, maybe the first time I met Maytab, he just texts me and he's just like, you know, you don't have to pay Facebook. He's like, they got so much money. You just can just not pay them. Isn't that right, Maytab? Yeah, they're okay with net 45. It says net 30, but you can pay them 15 days late. Nothing happens. You'll learn that and all these other crazy tricks today on the Operators Podcast brought to you by Northbeam. We got Jason. We got Mike. Matt is in Croatia riding a jet ski. Matt is on vacation trash. yet again. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. He, Matt he's is on a perpetual life. vacation. I'm, I, should, I should be one to talk. I'm on vacation next week. So yeah, you, have what, fun, Matt. Didn't you, you just went to Hawaii and now you're going to Italy? That may be true. <laughs> Sorry, hey, I don't and Jason, you you live in a villa full time. I guess I'm the only one out here grinding. We should get Marty back. <laughs> I on live here. in the that... floral factory. You know? <laughs> where I live. But it's funny. Spe- speaking of grinders, uh, Maytab uprooted his entire life, moved to Mexico because the factory was cheaper. Is that why? I would love to hear that and more of your story, man. So what's what what's what's just the background? What do we need to know about you? Yeah, so bootstrapped a few really small consumer brands back when organic reach was um, easy mode. And then either flipped those or held on to them and started. Um, I actually went on Reddit to try and find deal flow. And that's where I met my co-founder as well as two others. Um, and we ended up working together really well. Made a few investments before we met in person. Uh, ended up selling one or two of those companies. Those are just minority equity stakes. And then we ended up working even more closely together and buying a company or two outright. Um, and taking control stakes in companies. And now I'm primarily working on this floral company here that makes wooden flowers. So so let's go all the way back to the beginning. You're a Canadian guy. How do you get into consumer? Like, what's the first brand? What's the first deal? Like, what are you looking at? Yeah, I was just flipping guitars online. And then, um, like, I, I was really into guitar. I used to play like six to eight hours a day as a kid. Realized, hey, I'm not a good musician at all. Um, but I still like playing guitar and trying new guitars out. So in college, I started flipping them, just buying off of um, old guys on fa- on like, you know, whatever Facebook groups or forums back then with um, really bad pictures of their guitars. So I just I'd buy them, take better pictures and, and then flip them. 
eventually turned that into an online community and then turned that into like a, a pre-order based retailer. So we didn't really need any cash to scale. If that makes sense. Um, and then from there, I launched a guitar pedal company with a guy I'd met flipping guitars. Um, and he's actually like a Grammy nominated guitarist um, in, in progressive metal. Um, and then at the same time, I started a men's hair product company called Blue Mon with a friend of mine. And I, um, I kind of sold both stakes um, like a few years after we started those. And then I started investing where I met Alex, my current co-founder. Okay. So, so you sold both stakes. What did, what did that look like? Oh, really small, really, really small, like a couple hundred grand or something, nothing crazy, but enough to start investing. And then um, Alex had spent time at, I used to, at, he actually bootstrapped a company called EcoFlower to kind of eight figures in revenue in his early 20s, flipped that to a PE firm. And then he went to go work for CSC Generation as CEO of Ice.com, the jewelry company. And um, he left after like a year or so, just because the dynamics aren't as good as if you're the founder, right? Like the the equity stake isn't as meaningful. Um, so he, he left that and that's where I met him on Reddit looking for deal flow. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a very interesting world. I didn't know he worked at C is it CEC generations? Uh, CSC. CSC, right. They, they, they own Sur La Top and they own Z Gallery. Uh, yeah. Z Gallery, Touch of Modern and uh, quite, quite a savage business model and explains why you guys are such savages. So why the floral? Tab is a complete savage. That's why I was excited to have him on the pod today. Um, it's funny the first time I read. <laughs> when um, when I first really started getting on Twitter about D 2 C, um, even though I was on Twitter for a long time, no one gave a shit of what I had to say until maybe a year and a half ago. But Maytab was one of the first guys that I started interacting with, um, and I just, he, I just, he was. The, just hardcore, you know, and then we all, the big dogs, uh, we all met up at, uh, this is actually the first time I met Mike. Mike, remember I drove you to the airport? He drove me to the you airport. That's right. You didn't even give me a fucking tip, man. Jesus. <laughs> hey. Was he wearing his signature khakis? I drove Mike tent? to the airport. Oh, absolutely was... I was. We also, there's, the, if you ask Stephen Borelli, who was also part of that, I don't remember who, it was Sean, Stephen, and somebody else. We, we got dinner the night before and they take me to this place it's on the ocean it's california it's beautiful and it's a really nice steakhouse and i'm just i've been traveling i'm famished i'm like guys i could eat hey they've got this like 250 dollar seafood appetizer platter i'm like will you guys help me eat this like i just got to get food coming out here and they're like yeah sure man no problem i order this thing and all of them are like yeah i don't think i want any of it and so i basically eat five pounds of seafood as an appetizer <laughs> before the main course. And and Stephen's like, how are you eating that much food? You weigh like a buck 60. So anyway, that, that was the same, the same infamous trip where I stiffed Jason on the way to the airport. <laughs> I know I'm the least successful Uber driver, but at that, that, uh, at, at the Ridge office is, uh, we met in, in person for the, for the first time. And what I loved about Maytab was, you know, really didn't people didn't know much about Hexclad at the time, and I find now, I meet people and we have a presence. You know, between Hexclad and Twitter and and Operators Pod and and people treat me differently now, and I appreciate good treatment, right? But but when no one knew me, Maytab was just like, "Hey, man, let's jam," you know. And I see a lot of that even now when when people don't realize how well Hexclad is doing or how we've grown. 
like the first conversations with them are kind of like, eh. And then they, if they hear something, all of a sudden they start to treat you differently. And I'm sure Sean, right. like you guys, you guys see that too. So I really appreciate the genuine people like Maytab who like, he was just like, yeah, man, let's just, let's just chat. So, um, and plus he's a, a savage operator who I wish I had more time to talk to because I know it'll make our business better. So thank you. I agree with that completely. The one thing, the one word I could use to describe Maytab is, is, uh, tenacity. He'll text me, he'll post on Twitter and I'll see him in Ecom Fuel like in the same hour with different topics and conversations. Like the guy has surface area, right? Like he is <laughs> like, it's just free research. It's like, well, you know, why, so far why bother looking covered, up tech? You, you've done guitars, you've done a men's hair product, you've done wood flowers, like just in the story, part of the story that he shared so far, like that's crazy range, right? Our first, um, our first like decent exit was in a men's health. Oh, Sorry, just an adult health wellness company, which is a really nice way of saying sex toys. I think I posted the picture of all the returns on, um, on Twitter. Bro, that picture was the single most fascinating and repulsive thing I'd seen all week. I, I could not stop looking at that. The founder was convinced we could do something with the return. So we just had this pile that accumulated over two years. And it was like the, the picture I showed really wasn't was just a t tiny sliver of it. There's just tons and tons of returns that were manually processed. They're all opened and used and stuff. And it's disgusting. Um, but he was convinced we could sell them or something overseas, but uh, we couldn't. So we threw them out eventually, but we had them there for like two years. Well, I'm glad you threw them away, man. It sounds like you're, you're coming up with new uh, sexually transmitted diseases. You're making a bio lab over there. Uh, no, no, but I think Jason, you, you bring up a good point, right? And, and Mike as well. It's like the surface area, like, to do so many different niches and to like focus on doing them successfully, it, 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 it isn't a passion about product. It's a passion about the industry, right? I think that's very rare. So often you talk to people, specifically founders, and they're like, I made a thing because I love this thing, right? And, and for me, that was the guitars, that was the guitar pedals. But then pretty soon it's just like, no, I love making money or I love the systems and infrastructure. It's just fun nerding out with guys like you, like you guys. Yeah. So. Well, and I think that's the whole point of the podcast, right? Is like, it's a podcast for people that are actually operating businesses. And the thing I love about your story is I think it really illustrates that success is more about how knowing how to operate than it is the specifics of a particular business, because you've proven it in several different business models. I mean, Sean used the word tenacity. Uh, Jason used the word savage, which I think you're using that in a similar kind of sense, like a willing to do what it takes to, to be clear eyed, to, you know, really drive, dive into the numbers and drive and hit the numbers you have to hit. And so that's one of the reasons I was super pumped about you being on the podcast. Cause like, that's the whole point, right? We're here. The, the people who listen to this are people that are operating businesses. And uh, I think that your story is just a reminder that, hey, if you're good at operating, you can do a lot of different things. You can do it successfully. And so we'd love to hear more of that and us to dive into that today as we're talking because you've got some real gems. Yeah. So let's go to the tactical tip section. So Meetab, you see a lot of brands. You help a lot of people who are heading towards bankruptcy or, or are distressed in some way and they're about to do a turnaround. You know, Ridge sees a lot of deals. I probably get, I would, I guess I average two deals a day that come across my desk, you know, either emails or DMs or whatever. And the ones that are actually interesting, I hand over and I'm like, hey, do you think we should do this or not? Right. And like, like, how bad 
is the is the stack. And he's working on one of those right now with me. It's you know it's an accessories company. They've never really had that. Like maybe the biggest sales year was t- 10, 20 million, Never turned a profit. And they you know, they're going bankrupt. They're like you know, a couple million bucks. They have no assets. And I'm like, how salvageable is this? And how cheap can I get it for? So you really carved a niche for yourself doing that. What do people need to know to either avoid getting into that situation or take advantage of those situations? Yeah, I think the um, biggest thing is just knowing how the law works, especially how things play out for deals where revenue is under, let's say, 50 to 75 million. At that point, you're you're kind of too small for a lot of major lenders to really care to do much, if that makes sense, right? Like no one's going to spend um, $5 million on litigation to resolve a loan or a credit position that might only be worth seven million or ten million, right? The math just doesn't work often. Um, so I, I think the biggest thing, as far as avoiding getting yourself in trouble, is really knowing at least high level how the law works around credit that you end up taking. You know, like what's the difference between senior secured and unsecured, right? Like what can happen in each scenario if you do default with some of these lenders, especially the programmatic e-commerce ones. In 2020 and 2021, if you utilize them, their agreements were so weak that you could default and just walk away. But a lot of people paid them anyways when they were distressed. When really, the best thing for the business and for the creditors long term is if you did not pay them, you took that cash and just kept it in the company and, and kept trying to bring revenue back, if that makes sense, um, and then paid them back when you could. But instead, they kind of let all the cash flow out to these lenders that didn't really need to be paid, if that makes sense. Um, that and then just monitoring your 13-week cash flow model or building that out so you actually know where you truly sit in terms of cash, right? Um, because your, your company can be growing and you can be doing well and you can still run out of cash. Yeah, so or, go ahead, Jason, please. Oh, I would, so I want to double-click on the whole working capital um, financing because you you seem to have a level of mastery over this and... I can absolutely ensure you that of the you know 300 plus people in the operators Slack right now, half, if not more than half, maybe even all of them, that they, they, they face this problem, right? The problem is that even if you're growing and profitable, you still need capital. And everyone is always, there's no, I don't think there's like a one size fits all approach to this, but if you don't mind, like what would your advice be for Brand XYZ, their business, they've got some product market fit. They're able to sell their product. They're actually even able to sell it reasonably profitably, you know, on a on an AOV to CAC basis. But that's not enough, especially if you're growing. Yeah. I'd say um taking the time to really go through, build out a 13-week model, look at what your drivers are, see where operating leverage exists and what the breakpoints are for your business, right? Um, I'm sure you guys are running to this where at a certain revenue threshold, um, operating leverage really kicks in for your business and suddenly you're more profitable. And I think knowing where that sits um, with like the way your business is structured currently is really important so you can see what happens. Like for this floral company, for example, certain things on the operating side, only like, let's say a pack size machine, right? And all that does is it makes the right size box for the right size pa- um, uh, shipment, right? And that reduces your shipping costs quite a bit, but it only kicks in and it's only viable at a certain scale. Um, and, and really knowing what that looks like and how everything breaks out and what profitability will truly be. And I don't think relying on the marketing side really makes sense there. Um, I think a lot of people do that. And it's just way less predictable than ops, right? Um, or, or something like supply chain. 
where you know for sure a certain volume discount kicks in with a certain supplier or they'll move you to better net terms, et cetera. That's just so much more reliable. And I think that's why we've migrated to to being um, heavier on the manufacturing side. Like now we won't really buy anything unless we can manufacture it ourselves um, just because that edge is so much more portable, right? Like you learn lean manufacturing at one company and you learn how to put together a bouquet like this perfectly. Uh, you can carry that over to another company and use the same manufacturing techniques, but you can't really do that with marketing. Um, but what about um, what about just the strategies? Um, you, like you mentioned Facebook earlier, right? You can pay Facebook in 45 days instead of 30. Right. Um, you know, everyone's talking about this card or Wayflyer or right. like, clearly there's operational levers that you can pull on to help. Totally. Right. But, but uh, like financing levers, like are there any things that you've seen? Because I think someone needs to write a book about this. Like someone really needs to teach this. People don't realize, we've talked about this before, that you actually need capital to run a business. So let's start from that. Like the, the ability to just stand up a D2C business with no capital is like, it's silly to even think that you can do it. I don't know why people do that. Uh, maybe back in the drop shipping days when you can just not have a lot of, it just, just wasn't a big working capital requirement. But you know, e even us um, in 2021, when we were pretty big, it was like, okay, where are we getting financing from? And now it's different. We've got big enough. We've got JP Morgan. We've got other things. But like the 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 10 million in sales company, right? Those operators, the the 5 million in sales or even 20 million in sales. You know, what are the levers that they should be pulling? Well, Jason, I saw this tweet today and I think it's super accurate that someone was like, hey, you can't start an e-commerce brand with $50 anymore. Like the minimum buy-in is 50,000. And it's silly to think that anyone thought they could start a company with no capital, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, yeah, there was a brief couple, a period of time, a couple of years or whatever, where you could start a company with literally zero dollars or you know, pocket change, yep. fifty hundred bucks. Yeah, I think we're back to a point where I wouldn't start a company with less than a five hundred thousand dollar investment into it, right? And you know, there's no VC investors for that. So either raise from your rich friends or you got to bootstrap it or something, right? You have to come up with that money because. I think the real question, Jason, that I think we could summarize this for everyone listening, people t ask me all the time, hey, I'm doing seven figures. I want to get to eight figures. How do I finance inventory? That's like the number one question I hear. And I think if we can answer that, that answers you know, the, the, the real root of your question is where does the money come from? So if you're doing $2 million right now, you you have a PO from a, you know, or, or you're in talks with a big wholesaler and things are going well, you're profitable. What, how do you get $2 million to do an, another inventory buy? What would you do? Yeah, I'd say testing all your vendors just to see where the breakpoint really is for when they cut you off, right? Like Facebook's true cutoff is actually, I think, 22 days or 20 days. We just do 15 or 18 days because that gives you a bit of buffer in case there's an issue with the wire. Um, I, forget, I forget what Google AdWords is off the top of my head, but you can pay that late as well. Um, Uline, the guy's making these boxes behind me. They can be paid really late too, depending on how good of a customer you are. Um, I think just testing the vendors to see what can happen. Um, as well as negotiating more formal net terms, right? Um, in a lot of cases, you can create quite a bit of working capital if you haven't already done that. Uh, at that and doing things like revolving credit cards, I think for smaller companies is really, really big. A lot of those credit cards will be personally guaranteed now. Um, they didn't used to be in like 2019, 2020, and 2021, but I, I, and 2022, but I think a lot of them are PG'd now for smaller companies. Um, I think would you can float off of that. I was gonna say, would you sign a PG if you had to? Um, 
not anymore, but I would have gone really ham with PG debt when I was younger if right. if it was available. I'm Canadian, so we don't have the SBA or anything like that here. And I can't actually PG anything here anyways because I'm Canadian. Right. So how much does it matter? And, and you guys can maybe help me understand because with us, we got on a revolver fairly early. And the reason why we were able to get on a revolver, a revolving line of credit, where we got you know, basically credit and working capital against our inventory to kind of work with, which makes all the difference in the world. Just kind of to give some terms for people like that the way that a revolving line of credit typically works is that you have um, kind of a number that you that you provide them. There's a there's a calculation uh, of borrowing base. And it's basically like it looks at your inventory, it looks at receivables and other things and kind of says you might have a line of credit for five million dollars, but uh, once you do this formula, uh, if you only have $3 million in this formula, you get the lesser of the two, right? So you got a right. line of credit and then you've got this borrowing base. And having that really was the answer for us of why we were able to make it work um, because I'd only put a couple hundred thousand dollars in the company. The reason why we were able to get a revolving line of credit and uh, and grow the way that we were is because we were able to make an argument to the lender if something bad happens and our company goes under that this inventory could be sold through Amazon. So having this really strong Amazon part of our business was huge, which a lot of D to C, I think a lender probably looks at it and says, well, if you're not here to market it, this inventory is not going to sell or I can't unload this inventory. So I'd right. be curious your perspective on that. Like how important is it to get your business to a place where it is bankable um, and what are the things that you see that really make the difference there? Sorry, real quick, Mike, what bank did that? So I started with a local bank. Um, okay, and... that's, that's good. I, I, I want to I recircle back to that after me to have yes. answers. Like what, what are the factors? Absolutely. Yeah, I'll tell the whole story too because we started with a local bank and almost got burned there. We're with, we're with Chase, Morgan Chase now, but uh, we went through the whole journey and I can kind of share that. But it was, it was critical for us. We would, we would have not been able to do anything we did if we didn't have a revolving line of credit. So I'm, I'm curious if you're able to grow them without it or if you try and make the businesses you get into bankable. Yeah, I feel like getting true non-recourse credit for a business that has less than $3 million in EBITDA or $2 million in EBITDA is really, really hard. After that, you open up a lot of options. Like a lot of these smaller MES funds will definitely lend to you. Um, the term sheets will be fairly aggressive, but they'll totally lend to you, no PG, et cetera. And then a lot of these programmatic e-commerce lenders, they'll lend to you as well, no PG or anything like that. Um, assuming you're kind of past that two or three million mark in EBITDA. Um, and I'd say in typical D to C, what's that end up being top line? Like anywhere from 12 million to 20 million, right? Depending on how fast you're growing, how much cash you're consuming, et cetera, and what the EBITDA adjustments are. Um, for smaller businesses under that threshold, you're kind of stuck with the SBA back debt. Um, and that's the only real option. There's there's a few lenders that can get comfortable with smaller deals where you only have like a million in EBITDA, but most of those will be PG'd and they will be backed by the SBA. Yeah. What I, what I, that's great advice. And we'll, we'll run through the full stack in a second, but Mike, so you're talking about asset backed lending, right? Yeah. Where you had an asset and, and really what this is, you take money. Uh, and you place a PO with a supplier in China, right, mm -hmm. or wherever, and they they ship you those units, and then you immediately go to a bank and say, "Hey, I have this asset now that I mm -hmm. put my money on. Give me more money so I can run my business." Let me and borrow asset, against this asset my inventory, yes, or receivables, you know, things that have real value, yes. Yes, and asset backed lending is great, but 
it's very hard to get from the big four banks. And you really just hit on like the role of regional banks in America. The reason why First Republic and SVB going down, shout out Mitab's hat, is a big deal is that like regional banks, because of their risk profile, because of their ability to do like, you know, business with local businesses like like Mike was, uh, they were willing to do stuff like that. Where for Ridge to get asset-backed lending from Chase is a massive pain in the ass, right? Chase would much rather just give us like a true line of credit than have to go through the the hoops to get asset-backed lending. Because Mike's totally right. They have to do a risk assessment. They're like, oh, we're going to have to send someone to your place to count your inventory, right? Or trust your auditors or whatever else. And anyway, I, I, I worry that in the next 10 years, as regional banks kind of implode and they have deposits pulled out of them, that even that as a tool will be harder and harder to get. Um, so any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, well, I'll, I'll share the rest of my story, Sean, to your point, And I think it, it emphasizes what you're talking about. You go back, whatever, 50 years, you need some money. Well, you've got a name in your community or your family does, right? And you can go to the regional bank and they kind of know who your parents are or they, you know, grandfather or something. And personal reputation matters, right? Because you're in a market and you're kind of known. And so you're, you're talking to a local banker that maybe lives, lives in the next you know, neighborhood down the street from you or whatever. And there is a real relational piece in addition to kind of all the financial disciplines of making a good loan. So when we got our first uh, line on this business, I, the bank was literally located in the first floor of a floor that we had the 15th and 16th floors rented out with a company I'd started with my brother. So I'm able to walk down there. I have instant credibility, right? Like, and I'm in Oklahoma and we had a name in Oklahoma as entrepreneurs because we had built something. My balance sheet, uh, my personal balance sheet was pretty good. It wasn't like amazing. Like uh, at that point we hadn't, uh, it's not like I just had millions of dollars stashed away, but the name piece and the community piece really mattered. And we still had to start small. I think our first line of credit was like $50,000, but it grew really quickly. You know, it was like 50, 100, 200, 500. And the, as it grew, you know, that relationship grew. I got to know the CEO of the bank. There were a lot of in-person meetings. So that's the problem is if I'm applying to Morgan Chase first, like they don't want to talk to me. First of all, I'm too small. But second of all, they don't know who I am. They don't care, Right. The local community bank was awesome. Now, the problem that we ran into, and this is another danger, is that we kept growing and we started to be like a pretty big account for them. Like, I think we got to where our our line of credit was $5 million or $7 million, which for a local community bank, that's a pretty big chunk, right? And I realized, man, we're going to outgrow them and that could potentially be a problem that eventually this amount of exposure is going to make them nervous, right? And this was probably late 2019. But I felt a lot of loyalty to them because, hey, they had they had said yes early and they had been on our side. Uh, I had a relationship with all these people. And I really just kind of said, you know what? I'm going to let them be the ones that initiate the breakup, which in retrospect was not the right way to handle it. It, the heart behind it was good, but it wasn't the right way to handle it. So everybody knows what happens in March 22 or March of 20, right? COVID hits, oil goes negative. So if you're in Oklahoma, just imagine this for a second, you're in Oklahoma community bank 
you've got a bunch of your portfolio and what they sell is literally negative. And so they're like, we have got to cut exposure all over the place. They basically came to us in March during this period when like vendors are telling us they can't buy from us and stuff. And they're saying, guys, we can't support this line of credit anymore. And I don't hold it against them. Like they were just trying to, you know, be smart operators and cut their risk exposure. But then we had- and That's really common too. Yeah. And that'll yeah. happen. Yep. So we had to scramble. Now, fortunately, the business was strong enough that all of the big multinationals were lined up. And we're ready to go. They, they they wanted to talk to us. We we ended up uh, working with, uh, like I said, Morgan Chase, and they've been awesome. And at this point, I think we have something like a fifty million dollar facility with them. But I really exposed the business to a lot of risk with how I handled that. I should have transitioned proactively. I should have communicated and said, "Hey, I love you guys. You've helped us get to this point, but we're outgrowing you." Instead, I left it up to chance. And it's easy to imagine, like, let's say I'm not making water bottles. Let's say I'm making luggage, right? We would have gone bankrupt, probably. Like the market would have turned. Nobody's traveling, COVID. All of a sudden, my lender's not going to renew my line of credit. You're out of business. Yeah. And let's just talk about, uh, look, it, it sucks it happened. It was, it's great that you're big enough. You're able to, you know, uh, you know, get over to Chase and Chase would love to have your business. But regional banks in America can't have deposits or assets over $20 billion. So Mike, there's a very good chance you were 1% of the exposure of that regional bank, right? Yep. And that's yep. why they're like, guys, like Mike, I love him. He's a great guy, but everything else is going under. We cannot support the water bottle company. You were really probably 1% of their exposure. And uh, you know, it, it, it's just a shame that that's happening in, in the regional banking system. Um, Jason, any, any thoughts on that before I, I want to go to like the like the the life cycle of a consumer brand and where they should get that from and we'll see if we can build that out for people. No, lay it on us. I want to hear it too. I'm here for it. Yeah. I got it. Ready? Yeah, please. Yeah. I really I trust Northbeam because I know the rigor of their analytics. Like they don't uh they don't compromise, they don't they don't cut corners and Having come from a finance background and being a numbers guy, I know that all models are wrong, but theirs is going to be the least wrong because of that level of, of rigor. It's like there's a trust when you're dealing with something with a model, um, the math behind it, the rigor, there's like a million shortcuts that can be taken. I just, I know them from, for a long time. And I, then that's why I like, I trust that they are. They're putting the level of analytics. It's like Hexclad um, reduce, releasing a new product. We're just not going to do it unless it's great, unless it's innovative, unless it's special. And, that, and that's, that's the approach over at Northbeam. So that's why we really, really trust the platform. You are wasting a fuck ton of money by not using Northbeam. That's my, my totally unbiased opinion about this is that you know we'll spend a million dollars on Twitter this quarter. I only feel comfortable doing that because of what Northbeam tells me, right? I can apples to apples compare a Northbeam, or sorry, inside a Northbeam, a Twitter click versus a Facebook click, right? I can see the value, how it changes over five days, seven days. We, we look at one day click. That's kind of like our whole thing. But if you're, if, cause other people look in platform, like of course, Facebook's going to fucking tell you it's the best driver of traffic. And so is Google. And so is everybody else. Right. Uh, so you, you need a source of truth for your business.
Um, I think zero to five, zero to eight, you're kind of stuck floating credit cards and using a handful of other financing facilities that you can get kind of things like PayPal loans, Amazon loans, et cetera. They're all fairly garbage, but you should be able to beat the, um, you should be able to beat them uh, based on the IRR of your own initiatives, right? Like theoretically, if you're a really small brand, you can double, you can triple, you can quadruple. It's totally doable, right? Um, and then kind of at that eight to $15 million area, you can start to look at more formal lenders, including Mez on the higher end. Um, and then going to some of these programmatic e-commerce lenders, like I think Highbeam will give you quite a bit unsecured. Um, and then some of these other guys like Settle, I think they'll do custom agreements. Uh, Wayflyer, Wayflyer is a good one too. And those are all suitable for brands with less than, let's say, two or three, like between one to two million in EBITDA, maybe even slightly more. The nice thing is you can diversify your lender base that way. Um, and there's a lot less systematic risk. You know, you're not going to get rug pulled as easily, et cetera. Um, and then past that, you're, you're kind of going to private credit funds or banks, et cetera. Um, and it'll really just depend on the business and who you end up working with. Okay. So getting started, you're like, you, you have credit cards or the SBA. That's, that's what you have, right? And then as soon as you have some sort of product market fit, you're going Amazon loan, PayPal loan, Shopify capital, just instant approval, digital money, right? You log into yep. PayPal, they'll give, you, <laughs> they'll give you 20 grand, just take it, take whatever you can get, right? And I think it's a really good point that it doesn't matter what the terms are necessarily because you need capital and you're growing really fast. If you're doing yeah, less exactly. than $3 million, even even if they're lending you money at 35% or whatever, which is what your Amex is lending you money at, uh, you you better be – don't take money if you're not growing faster than that because at a small scale, you should be able to match that. And then right. once you get to mid mid teens of millions, that's when you think you bring on the clear codes of the. I don't know if clear codes in business anymore, but you bring on the the programmatic ecom lenders. And some of those guys will match like what the private credit funds will do with better terms. Like I think Wayfire um, is quite flexible there. I had a friend who just went through the process. He's in our texting group, Sean. Uh, he went through the process with Wayfire, and they beat out a bunch of private credit funds, which I was surprised by. Um, so they're probably worth talking to, and then a few other competitors as well. Nice. And then, so do, and then when you think you cross, you know, into like the twenties, the thirties, like that's when you think you bring on Mez debt, which is for everyone listening, it's it's structured business lending, right? It's like it's it's the hedge funds of the world or whatever else who make a living lending money out before Clearco existed or Wayflyer existed, right? They're they're long term lenders. Yeah. So define that, Sean. Like, what's what are the characteristic of of Mez debt? Like. So it's it's a it's similar to private equity. It's a big pot of money, and instead of buying businesses, they they make a living lending out expensive money, right? Expensive. And they basically money. sit at the bottom of the of credit. Like they're not if there's a senior creditor lending against inventory or something, they might sit above them. Those guys. Yeah, yeah. So, uh... so they're unsecured. They're generally unsecured, which just to define that term for people. Or. Go ahead. Yeah, they, they could also be secured. It just depends on your stack, right? Like just generally, right. if you have a secured lender, let's say you're working with a formal bank lender and they're your ABL, right? Like your ABL will sit above MES and MES is generally the most expensive form of debt. <laughs> and that's why they're generally open to working with smaller businesses, but let's say one to three million EBITDA, one to five million EBITDA. And you'll still see MES lenders used on really big deals to fill like the last little tranche of debt. And Jason can speak to this. He's the, uh, he's the investment banker, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh... 
I, there's a lot of terms we should define. So, uh, you know, a regional bank gives you an asset back loan, right? That is secured by that asset. So if you go bankrupt, nobody else can claim that asset. They get first dibs on that asset, right? And then there might be a, a, another secured just on the general business. Hey, we're, we're, we're preferred debt. We get paid before everybody else, right? Except the asset backed lending because they have an asset claimed, right? So this will just be a general we're paid before everybody else and and mes will sit there or lower but still be a secured claim uh so they will get paid before you know facebook's of the world Fa facebook's but there's different debt. types of security right there's abl is you've got security in all these different assets and even if it's not abl based in terms of the lending model um there's there's security they they might have security in the assets of the company and your shares in the company but then there's you said PG, right? A personal guarantee on these. So like some banks will give you a line of credit if you personally guarantee it. Um, you reach a certain size and scale and you can get away with not personally guaranteeing. And that's what Instapot did, right? Like they had, there's no PG there, obviously. They took out debt against the company and they used that to pay out a dividend. Yeah, which is always, almost always, unless you're very, very stable is a bad idea. Well, the pot was, an LB, was really an LBO, right? I mean, it was a PE deal. Uh, it was, yeah, yeah. And, and it was done at a time when, uh, when it was a different rate environment. And there yeah. was a, there were a few tweets about, about instant brands. And I thought it was actually really interesting. And I reached out to um, a couple of banker friends of mine. And so I thought it was really about rates that did it for them and maybe a little bit from Bed Bath & Beyond, which was probably a big retailer for them. Mm -hmm. But their their revenue contracted too for seven quarters. Yeah, yeah. So a, yeah. yeah. So like I was yeah. I was actually surprised with like how deeply their their revenue contracted, and uh, I was wondering if anybody here's well, got some thoughts on that. So it's it's COVID, right? Like the it, it's an interesting question. I don't know if we've discussed it on this podcast, but mm -hmm. I've I've had this discussion. I think we've maybe had it in the chat. But like, here's the question: COVID was this once in a generation tailwind to different companies and sectors, the Pelotons of the world, you know, uh, are, or a bunch of the tech examples can come to, come to the front of your mind. But also if you were in the business of making things for the home, like an air fryer or something like that, like, like Instapods, you had this generational push. So here's the question. As we look backwards, was COVID actually good for any of the companies that we thought it benefited? And I think the answer is no. I think almost universally, even though COVID looked like this generational good fortune event for almost across the board, what it looks like is it's just destroyed these companies. And it's done it in a bunch of different ways, but the number one way that it, it wrecked them is it totally destroyed their ability to project the future. And that caused them to operate their business really poorly on the financial side, on the personnel side. And as a result, they made all these decisions that just caused implosion and disaster. And my guess is that's what happened here. Like, you know, eight quarters ago, it probably looked like we're going to sell 8 billion Instapots next year. And so you start thinking about, I mean, if you took out debt around that period, if you do a transaction around that period, everything in the model is just basically nonsense within four quarters. 
because you had just this generational pull forward of demand and whatever. And you end up probably getting three years of Instapot sales in two quarters, right? Because everybody's stuck at home and everybody's like, I'm going to cook, I'm going to get healthy. And then nobody wants an Instapot at all for like the next six quarters or whatever. This is what we were told by Target as a, as a side note. There was a point last year, just as a data point, there was a point when Target couldn't order from us and the reason wasn't financial. They literally did not have the space in their distribution centers to move inventory through them. Their, their distribution centers had basically been ground to a halt. And we asked, like, what's the deal? And they were like, it's literally air fryers and Christmas trees stacked to the ceiling. We just can't even get stuff through to our, to our um, fulfillment centers because of what a disaster it is. And, and I'm sure that they got caught up in this mess. No, Mike, you're totally right. It wasn't it wasn't a once in a lifetime revenue opportunity. It was all of the revenue pulled forward, right? So that's what happened. Like why the revenue go down? It's like it should ne never should have been high. And then really the quality of that revenue or really the quality of the mm -hmm. profit was really bad because instead of having a normal business over three years or five years with 20% EBITDA, they had really high import costs. They probably had high cost of sales, right? Like they, like logistics cost, everything was so crazy that they did the same amount of revenue in five years and two quarters with about a 10th of the profit, right? Um, so right. that doesn't surprise me at all that they're fucked up. And the thing about air fryers, we heard this from Matt. Like why is, why is Matt's business crushing right now? It's because he gets a call from every retailer in America like, hey, nobody wants air fryers anymore. They're at 50% yep. household penetration. Nobody's ever going to buy one again. We need, some, we need something cube-shaped that people plug in. So can we have your thing, right? Um, yeah, what got most people is really like they had – they sold through all the inventory they had in their, in their chain. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is the best quarter we've ever had. We've got to go super big. And right when everybody went super big, costs exploded. You know, the supply chain ground to a halt, egg costs exploded. And so, like you said, another point, Sean, I would make is a customer acquired in March to, you know, let's just say the second half of 2020. Usually when you sell something, you think, okay, I've acquired a customer. Now this percentage of them are going to be retained to my brand. And this is all the things it means. Well, none of that applied anymore because you're you're basically acquiring customers under duress, right? People who would have never thought about buying an Instapot, they would have just gone to McDonald's every night are now buying Instapots. And guess what? That has all these implications for their lifetime user value and future behavior even. Forget the fact that they just bought but an Instapot. it just Instapod. shows such bad business judgment. You know, it's like, it's, this is why I always come back to looking at the sum of, like, look at the simple stuff. It's mm -hmm. just such bad judgment. Who, who would, why would you even think that this would continue? Like a, a bubble is a bubble. I guess people just get, everybody got so caught up. It's just it's Bro, crazy. People, people gave Sam Bankman fried hundreds, if not billions of dollars. And it's like, yeah, like it's, it's so obvious it's a bubble. Bitcoin at 60, 60,000. Like it's so obvious it's a bubble except for the people who are like, fuck it. I'm in the bubble. You know, like Peloton was worth $90 billion. You know what I mean? Well, this is, this is where I think your investor stack really matters. If you're public, it doesn't matter if you know it's a bubble. You're, if you're the Peloton CEO, you can't say we're not going to lean into this. You'd get yeah. fired, right? If, you're, if you've got a private equity, you know, owns 51% of your business, you can't tell them, hey, guys, 
let's slow our roll on the Instapots because this is not sustainable. They're going to be like, no, let's lean in. You're out of here. Like, this is where being privately owned, I mean, what you're basically advocating for, Jason, is sanity. And it requires having an ownership structure that's able to think long-term and is able to prioritize long-term. And in America, we just don't have that with a lot of these companies, you know? Well, also, I think we're just pretty short short on intelligence. Like, when you think about it, like 49.999% of the world has below average intelligence. (laughs) But everyone Um, thinks they're above average. and And you take, and then you take like the next 20% who are maybe just barely above average. And then, you know, you got 30%. It's just crazy to me. Like these are just, these things things seem so simple. Look, yeah, and being a public company is one of the worst business decisions, right? For the business, it's bad. You end up doing things like taking out high interest debt to do dividends or stock buybacks because you're protecting a something that has like a theory of value, stock price. It's why like, you know, the, the solo stove guys just like, yeah, we think we're undervalued and like how demoralizing it is to be at Albert's and you see that you're worth $150 million yeah. every day. Having, having a, an entire industry about putting value on you and what you're working on is very bad for people, I think. And at least a bad decision is being made because they want to protect that value. Well, I mean, listen, we, uh, th- it's, hard to, it's hard to understand mania and how, how, how powerful it is, except when you're in it. I mean, I lost a lot of money in 24 hours shorting GameStop. During COVID. <laughs> there was a death. I didn't expect Mike to say that. Oh my I mean, God, my, my God, worst, I think my that. worst investing loss of my career was like I was watching what was going on with GameStop and like this is completely disconnected from reality. But there's a famous investing quote that uh the, it's something like the market can stay insane longer than you can stay solvent. Yep. And and it's like that's what happened to me. Like it didn't matter that I knew it was insanity. It's funny, even with the SVP hat. SVB basically got taken down by COVID. COVID led to this explosion in tech, which led to all this money flowing into tech, and they put it all in SVB, and SVB put it all in treasuries, and you know the rest of the story. But SVB anyway, SVB is the only company that gives me free merch, so I'm not going to say anything about <laughs> yes. that. What's, what's well, so funny about that is like putting it in treasuries, everyone's like, that's so stupid. I'm like, you know, that's actually the safest thing you could possibly do with money, right? Like they just didn't know that the rates were going to go up 5%. And the entire banking system, like all banks are insolvent. If we all go to Chase, everyone listen to this and try to take our money out, they do not have enough money for all of us, right? It's because it's a trust system where they, they only have 10% of the money. They lend out 90% to pay fractional for the banking. Exactly, right? Almost no one understands how the fractional banking system works. And if you explain it to them, it freaks them out. But it's obviously been great for our country. But like the moment you actually understand what it means, it's like, what? They don't they don't actually have my money in like that vault, you know, with the security guard. Like I can't go get it. But it, what it really requires like running, I mean, whether you're operating your business or you're dealing with this, it really requires being able to say, this is not normal and this will not persist. And I'm not going to make decisions based on the assumption that this will persist. Yep. It's just really hard to do. All right. We've we've moved all of our finance, we've been doing a lot of finance here. I think it's time to switch gears into a little marketing panzerism. But before we, Uh-oh. but are we gonna, are we gonna do deep end metab the, uh, the 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 model? You're gonna do that in the deep end after that, yeah? Sure. Give us a little bit of that. 
Right. I feel like we could have like a nine hour podcast just trying to lay out terms and educate people and yeah. and, 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 and need to have let's have let's you're a regular guest now. I've promoted you. <laughs> I'm replacing knighted. the other Canadian. Yeah, yeah you guys <laughs> are swapping. We have a quota to fill and you you are a great you're a great host. All right. Same beard style. All right, Jason, I gotta it. hear it. All right, let's Marketing do it. Panzerism. Yeah, this is, you know, this is one I got a friend of mine texted me about a business that's in distress and this take a check out. What do you think of this brand, right? I look at their site and it just doesn't tell me why their product is special. It really doesn't. And it, at least it doesn't do a very good job of telling you why their product is special. Um, and the panzerism here is that you need to know your value propositions cold and you need to be like relentless about communicating them and communicating them properly and i just i see this all the time like and this was a problem for us too and even like through through 2021 because we have a very visual product and we you know, you could do a demo of the pan and people are like, oh, cool, look at what it does. You know, we have like the egg and then we have the steak and then the cleaning it up and, and the pizza cutter. We used to do this thing with the pizza cutter, like to show how durable the pan was. And then people actually went and bought a pizza cutter and tried really hard to scratch the pans and they didn't realize that you can actually scratch a diamond if you really want to. So we stopped doing the pizza cutter in the demo. Um, but in any event, like being relentless about your value propositions of your product and making sure that because you may have them in your head and they may seem obvious to you but they're not and i think that really just makes a huge difference and when when i saw this brand uh that my friend sent to me and, and so this company's in trouble or you do you think they have a good brand i was like well i don't know because it's already taken me way too long and i got below the fold on their site and they're like oh okay i get it i get why they think this is special but i shouldn't have to go find it either on the site or in the ads. And this came to me in, I think it was early 2022 because I was talking to a really like a high level PR agent in New York. And she's like, oh yeah, I heard Hexclad. My boyfriend has the pans, blah, blah, blah. But like, I don't understand why your Hexclad is special. I'm like, how is that even possible that she goes to our site and doesn't realize that our product is special? And it's because it's uh, it was ma it's maybe obvious to us, but we didn't do the exercise of like really laying out the value props. And so for us, it's uh, we reinvented the frying pan. It's the hybrid pan. It's the combination of stainless steel, nonstick, and the durability of cast iron. And it's so durable that we give it a lifetime warranty. And the pan is so good that Gordon Ramsay decided to invest in the company. And it can. It, ha it cleans up real easy. You can use metal utensils. You can put it in the dishwasher. You can put it in the oven. Um, it works on induction. Oh, and it's really fucking sexy, right? Like, and then and lately I've been at an event here or people hear about the pod. You know, we were at um, the Performance Marketing Summit for Meta and people are coming up to me and they're, and they're trying to explain their business. And it's like, that's how you need to explain your business. And that's how you need to actually communicate to your customers. And I just think it's something that it's so, it, this is another one where it's something that's really simple that people aren't doing well. So I just think like everybody should be super relentless about communicating their value props as, as much as they can, like over communicate them 
it will help you tremendously in your marketing. Because I know when we dialed them in last year, in 2022, we grew faster than 2021. And I really do think a huge part of that was just really communicating our value props better. Done. That's very well said, Jason. And if I could, if I could just add a twist to it, I think the real heart of that is nobody cares about your thing as much as you. They're not paying attention. So like you need to quickly get across in a world full of noise why you matter and why they should care. And if you can't do that, what why will I buy from a Facebook ad? I like the funniest video on earth, your ads interrupting it, the funniest video on earth. Why do you deserve my attention in between that stack? You got to get that across. I love that. And increasingly, you need to be able to communicate that visually without words. And because we're just in an increasingly like video driven kind of world when with, especially with all of the, the social stuff, like you said, a lot of people they're scrolling social and they're scrolling it uh, with sound turned off. Can you visually, a great example of me learning this, we, we had a, uh, you know, we had a tumbler that had a particular lid technology that we thought was pretty clever. Basically, like it's a straw tumbler and it won't really leak. And we, we thought it was better than other people. And it, it was a bestseller, got really great reviews. Uh, and then we saw this trend with like, you know, the 40 ounce tumbler and, and we, we thought, hey, we need to release a version of that. And so we took some of that technology and put it on this and did some other things and released it. When we built the initial advertising for that product, we were like talking about, oh, it has this lid that, you know, you, it's a quarter turn lid and you can do these different things and it comes in these colors and, you know, it's coupled or friendly and whatever else. One thing mattered. One thing really mattered. And that was that if you turned it like this, it wouldn't leak. And TikTok showed us that almost immediately. Like people got this thing and they would just like do these. I don't know if you guys have seen it. There have been a ton of them on social media. They get a Stanley Tumblr, they get ours, they put them side by side and they just turn them. No words, just music usually. And it was like, and that is all it took. Literally a product that probably will do $100 million in retail sales this year. The one thing people had to understand is that it was a typical simple modern quality insulated tumbler, but it did not leak and the competitor did. And that was it. And to your point, Jason, we didn't realize that that was the most important thing that needed to be said and that everything else was kind of superfluous to that. Um, and, and even the secondary thing that most people are buying on is ornamentation. We'll come out with a cool new color or we did one recently, we call it 80s mix where it had several different like Saved by the Bell type colors and people are just freaking out about this thing on social media. But again, it doesn't take words. It's literally like, here it is, it doesn't leak, it's pretty, that's it. I don't even have to say anything. I can just show people. And so it's something to think about with your brand. Number one, what is the most important thing that they're going to understand? What is the highest value proposition? And then number two, how do you communicate that as concisely and simplistically and as visually as possible? It's not a better mousetrap. It's the ability to sell a mousetrap. <laughs> that's that. That's what matters, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I even think it to, to to the other end where we spend so much time like obsessing over small changes. It's like, no, be radical because people do not care. <laughs> like people, 
people will not remember your logo or what your website looked like or what your footer looked like. People are optimizing stuff for like a, like trying to get a better conversion rate by button color. It's like, no, do something totally fucking radical because nobody cares. And that's from value props to ads to everything else. So what's your, what, Sean, for you guys, what's the number one value prop of Ridge Wallet? Is it front, is it front pocket? The, almost all of our ads that work is showing an old, ugly wallet and this is your new wallet and that's it <laughs> like so it just looks awesome it's like this just looks better this is just much cooler yeah it's like a, just like a yep. billfold fat wallet that you guys used to have before you met me and it's like no this is a ridge wallet and it's smaller and then it's like sleek sophisticated you know air tag tracking whatever like just getting that across I'll send you all of our ads. They all start with that, right? It's like that's the mm -hmm. hook that gets people to actually watch them. You know, and we're coming off of a huge season, right? Uh, last figure was an eight figure. Last month was an eight figure month. This month's an eight figure month. And we did an analysis off of Facebook ads, and video drives a higher percentage of new users, right? So, like, what does that mean? It's it's rapid video iteration, different hooks, different value props, different whatever are actually capturing net new people's attention. Static ads or, or, or some of our you know more middle of funnel stuff, like obviously it's reaching people who already know about the brand and it's just reminding them to stop. So if you actually want to reach net new, new people, you need one of those hooks Mike's talking about. Like people dumping it over, right? Get one value prop across very visually, very quick. I've started to are think about that as an interesting kind of way that you can design products. Are you designing your products with a feature or with a hook where people who are like wanting to produce content for social media, because that's what they do, will turn towards your product? Because I mean, there's all these people out there looking to grow their followers, looking to grow the, you know, their influence. Are you giving them an easy way to produce content? Because they'll do it for free if, if you make it easy for them, or if they think that, that it'll lead to more influence. Right. Because Jeff's going to add there, bud. I was just going to say part of the reason I'm at the warehouse today is to shoot a bunch of random content to test hooks faster because I was getting kind of irritated with how slow it was going. We we still, one of our best performing hooks has me in it from from the pandemic. Yeah, I was actually going to say, I uh, my fiance is with me in the back of the warehouse somewhere and uh, I'm copying you because I think your wife helps you shoot ads, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it. My wife has shot, 30% of the content you see in ads or whatever. And it's, you know, we have an awesome team now who does a bunch of different stuff and it's, it's less dependent on her, but it, it's, it's silly when I meet entrepreneurs who, who are total keyboard warriors, they're just trying to run it like a, basically a drop shipping company, even if they made a product and they won't shoot ads, they're like, they'll, and they'll be like, how do I make sales go? I'm like, shoot some goddamn fucking ads. I do it. Like, you know, my Saturdays, that's what I got to do for better. I had to shoot that Lululemon ad with Sarah. I had, I had to go to the grocery store and film her. It's, it's, you got to, got to be okay to do it, man. On this note, I, I sent this to the group. Uh, the founders podcast did a David Ogilvie uh, segment this uh, a week or two ago, which was awesome. That dude just has straight fire on, uh, marketing and, and copy and advertisements and how to think about it. But uh, I agree, Sean, you know, like my, my disposition sometimes can be to get in a spreadsheet and to think about things way too much in terms of the numbers in the spreadsheet. But you know what I've learned is great marketing breaks spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the few things that can break a model is just like this thing, when you can communicate your message that much more powerfully, all of a sudden, all your numbers can just level up in a way that's not possible any other way. 
the, that is a mic minute right there. Great marketing break spreadsheets. Totally, man. That's a tweet. Love Send that. that. I want to retweet All right. Love that. Tweeting now. We're really digging into the MMM, media mix modeling with North Beam right now. And uh, we're, we're, we're finding it really valuable. valuable. And I, I got a text this morning from another an excellent CMO of, of one of the best, fastest growing brands out there. And he's like, hey, we just signed on to, to media mix modeling. So you've got to be a certain size and scale to do it. But we're, we're super stoked about it. In fact, we were thinking about doing some incrementality testing too with something else. And it's like, you know what? Let's let's stick with the MMM stuff, and it's doing. Uh, it's really interesting. I think it's going to add a lot of value for us in, in July. We're making some spend decisions based on that very soon. Uh, that's awesome, Jason. Was that person at the Facebook event? No, he. That person's an East Coast guy and didn't make mm. it to the Facebook event. Interesting, because I just wanted to throw back to last episode. You know, mixed media modeling. I think it's media mix modeling. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> anyway, the MMMs, uh, that's all Facebook is pushing. That is the future of measurement as cookies get depreciated, as everything goes away. It's going back to 2001. You need to have a solution if you're above a certain size. If you're just spending money on Facebook right now, you don't need anything. That's my opinion on it. As you get to the Jasons of the world, spending 10, spending 20, spending $50 million a year, uh, that's probably the only future-proof system. So you have to find one. Northbeam has one. Jason loves it. Mike, any other words there? No, I, I think exactly what we've been talking about for several weeks here, that the world is complex and great brands market across a number of different channels. And you've got to be able to understand how those channels are working in concert to produce results. I mean, you said it about Facebook. Facebook feels like they're driving a lot of uh, behavior even outside of just your website. So I'm, I'm learning a ton about this and we're definitely leaning into how do we do more of mixed media modeling and you know, spend money more intelligently as a result. Okay. We, we got, we got some notes from Finn, the producer coming through. Okay. He says, uh, good marketing might break spreadsheets, but it doesn't break North beam. He can sell that tagline <laughs> to him if he wants. That's a good tagline. And then he's great. He just wants to know which one do we trust North beam, Facebook, GA, uh, you know, what do you do when all in platform analytics show different shit? Dude, this is, this is what, like, uh, the, the classic problem. You got to pick one. <laughs> you well, gotta... I'll say this. I'll make, I'll make the argument for, for a North Beam as opposed to the in-app analytics for Facebook or, or Google or whoever else. It's always hard to fully trust the data from somebody who has a strong financial incentive for you to see the numbers in a particular way. Like you should expect that Facebook's platform is always going to over-attribute sales and efficacy to their marketing because that's kind of their whole business like they're obviously going to look at the world through the lens where they're driving as much as possible google's the same way it's great having an independent tool where their point is to provide you an independent look at things and not to provide you a look just to get you to spend more money on their own business well dude the classic example is taboola and, and critio like if you run a one dollar in paid media there they're like we drove every sale ever so please spend more money yep. here uh 
you know, and I, I, I believe actually Facebook's results are understated in their ad platform still. I, I am really focused on team Facebook recently. And I think Facebook doesn't give themselves enough credit for what they're driving across my business. Uh, they're understated for us for um, like longer funnels. For sure. Yeah, dude. I mean, well, we, we've seen that recently. We did a huge analysis with like a, we, we had a holdout group, the whole thing, and because Facebook, you know, seven day view or whatever. I think what we've seen is that like over a twenty eight day gifting period, Facebook's undercrediting themselves by like fifty percent, right? Um, and we're able to find out that type of shit by like looking at it in North Beam, comparing one day clicks, twenty eight day views, whatever, and then the holdout group, and then the add the mixed media modeling. It, anyway, the future of marketing for these brands as digital tools get depreciated, GA going away, cookies going away, click tracking going away, is having sources of truth and then using your gut to make a decision out of those. It sucks, but like it's just going to get harder. You need all of these different types of tools to make a decision, or you can just say fuck it and wing it and just try to spend money. You'll waste money, but it, it's Sean, what you just said though about using your gut. I mean, that, that's how you make good decisions, right? You collect data from data points from everywhere, but then you have to apply judgment. You have to apply good judgment. Like all these guys that we're talking about with instant brands, it, it's, it's crazy to me how lacking good judgment is. And that's, that's the point of North being like, their analytical rigor is strong enough. It's not perfect, right? All models are wrong. I know it's better. And then, but you have to take in, you have to take those numbers. You have to take that data. You take your post-purchase survey data. You, you mesh it all together. Yeah, maybe yeah. do some media mix modeling, and then you apply business judgment. And, and and if you got to a certain point, like you should be able to make good decisions. Yeah, directionally. Yeah, yeah it's you, you, exactly. You need to take in all the data points to make a decision about that. So, <laughs> which one do I trust? Uh, well, I, I I trust them all to a certain extent. I guess I I trust North Northbeam. Uh, Mike's correct. It, it doesn't have an interest in trying to get me to spend money on any given platform. It does not give a fuck. Um, but all right, guys, we've we've talked for a while. We did the Northbeam plug. We've gone through fucking everything. I really think we should have a glossary. Me too. Let's let's do a little co-tweeting together where we try to like lay out these terms and what all they right, mean. Let's do it. Uh, but it's the deep end. It's your time, dude. It's your time to shine. Enrich our lives somehow. And you guys were saying you wanted to cover the 13-week model? This this yeah. is you. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you what to do, yeah. man. Yeah. So usually the deep end is like, hey, you going deep on one aspect of operating, and I think your 13-week cash flow model is an awesome opportunity to do that. Cool. Yeah, so I think um just taking the listener's perspective, if you've never heard of it. Basically, it's a really easy way to see movement of cash through your business. And this is important because it you don't quite get to catch that to the same degree in your standard kind of three-statement financial model. So um, what you'd want to start to do is if you just Google e-commerce fuel 13-week model, Andrew Darian there, he actually built a free one. I think it's on their blog. It's totally free. And it's geared towards e-commerce companies. There's also another one by a venture capital firm who I can't remember. But if you Google... Um, 13 week cash flow model e-commerce it'll show up and it's free and it's good um, and there's also another course but i think wall street prep that's pretty good those will all give you a nice starting point to start building your own 13 week cash flow model and see how different drivers impact your company right so if cat goes up by 10 bucks this week what happens to your cash position in six weeks and you can plan for any humps and you won't be 
totally slapped in the face when something um, doesn't go to plan. And, and it just lets you plan further out, avoid any big boo-boos, um, et cetera. And that would probably be uh, where I would start if I hadn't heard of a cache, uh, 13-week cache the model before. And you could always drag it out as far as you want um, and apply any sort of covenants or anything like else like that that you need to apply um, coming from your lenders. What's the number one mistake you see people make when it comes to how they approach their their cash flow model, their 13-week model? Yeah, it's like just not properly factoring in things that might not be as surefire as they think. So for example, build a few cases for like a good Black Friday, a bad Black Friday, and a great Black Friday, right? Like what happens if you miss forecast by 30%? Well, will you be out of business? Do you have a backup plan? Do you have liquidity you can reach out to somewhere? Um, what happens if one of your lenders pulls the rug on you, right? Do you have other lenders that you can pay? Can you split your total credit? Like, let's say you're a business that has like, I don't know, 10 million in credit needs. Can you split that among a few lenders, pay a little bit more, but now you have more security, right? Like say one rug pulls you, at least now you have the other three there, right? Um, just think That's like a good that. point on modeling. You know, as a banker, when we did a model, we always had three cases, upside case, middle case, or management case, and downside case. You, you need to have the the three cases. And and the other thing, just this whole topic of the 13 week model made me think of something that's just even more, more broadly, like it's amazing how many people that just don't understand their numbers. Like the, the most, one of the most, if not the most important thing, certainly right after having a good product is like in managing your business. It's like, everything is about the numbers. You need to be that you need to like embrace it. And there are a lot of people who are like, Oh, I'm not really good at math. And well, it's, this is arithmetic, right? Like it's, it's, it's incredible how hard mm -hmm. how people make it sound. And it's, it's really not that easy. Um, that model that you talked about, whether it was e-commerce fuel or something, I think I know like probably 10 people who've asked me about this recently. So that's super valuable. Hope people are going to listen to the end to hear about that and go find that. Well, and one of the things I would highlight and cause I'm guilty of this to be an entrepreneur, you almost you almost have to have like a pretty optimistic streak, right? Either that or you're just ins an insane person. And the problem with that is it's really easy to just be kind of hand wavy with the downside scenarios. Like that's not going to happen. We're not gonna, we're not going to miss Black Friday by 30%. You know, like what are you talking about? That's not going to happen. And that I would really emphasize the points in my career where I have put the business in more danger, it's been when I have been dismissive of the possibility of downside scenarios. And one of the things that I would just emphasize is you having a downside situation doesn't even mean you've done anything wrong, right? Like COVID was an example where a bunch of people had downside scenarios that's like literally there's nothing that they could have done and there is no way they could have yeah. ever predicted it. But there, if you don't build a business that's resilient enough, and has enough margin and enough give with your working capital where you can sustain a downside scenario, that's on you. It's not on you that you can't foresee that scenario. It's on you if you assume it can't happen and you don't prepare for it. Yeah, I want to take a step further. Uh, being in, being an entrepreneur is making it in the major leagues. So if you're listening to this right now and be like, oh, my finance team does it. No, fuck you. You do it. Go do this right now. Like it is, yep. it is unacceptable to like let this responsibility fall to other people because it's your dollars and you're the only people who protect your dollars we went deep today boys 
we went deep on financing. We threw in a little bit of marketing there with, with the knowing your value props. We went, we went deep. I think this is a good one. Yeah. And I think there's still terms we got to define. Mimi had just said covenants. That's when large banks make you do shit in your business to protect them. But we'll we'll do a whole separate thing there. Mitab, plug your plugs. What's your Substack? Uh, what is my Substack? If you just Google Carta Ventures Substack, it'll show up. Um, we're hiring right now across marketing as well as uh, finance in the U.S. And then we have a ton of roles across pretty much every function in Mexico. If you happen to be living in Mexico, just ping me on Twitter. Look at that. And if you're getting married and you're looking for a flower option, they'll be at my wedding. They're going to be at when, <laughs> when Jason and Mike, when, when, when they renew their vows with their wives, they'll be there, man. Support the homies. Uh, yeah, exactly. Wooden flowers. Me too. Your milk is in uh, the mail. We're paying you in milk for you showing up today. So I appreciate oh, you, man. Beautiful. Talk to you later. I hope it's whole milk. Oh, skim milk. Thanks, guys. Talk <laughs> soon. All right. See y'all. Be good.